from the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge, the show that invites scholars, makers, and professionals out to brunch for an informal conversation about their work. I'm your host, Ted Fox. This episode of With a Side of Knowledge is supported by Traditions Restaurant and Bar, located in the Embassy Suites directly across from the Notre Dame campus. Hours and other information are available at traditionsnd.com. If you see us recording there, feel free to stop by and say hi, preferably not when we're chewing. And when we're not recording or chewing, you can always find us on Twitter and now Instagram too. In both spots, we are at with a side of pod. This past November, Pratham Juneja was named to the American Rhodes Scholar Class of 2020, becoming the 20th Rhodes Scholar in Notre Dame history. We recorded our conversation in December, a few weeks after the Rhodes announcement, and a week or so before he graduated. Graduating in December is not especially common at Notre Dame. And in Pratham's case, it was because he completed the five-year Riley dual degree program in arts and letters and engineering in four and a half years. A political science and computer science major, he was also a member of the university's Glenn Family Honors Program and a College of Arts and Letters Dean's Fellow. Prior to being recognized with the Rhodes Scholarship, Pratham was named a Newman Civic Fellow by Campus Compact and a Truman Scholar by the Harry S. Truman Scholarship Foundation. Shreya Kumar, a faculty member in Notre Dame's Department of Computer Science and Engineering, who wrote one of Pratham's Rhodes recommendation letters, described him this way, quote, I have worked with many students who build impressive solutions to common problems, but I have hardly met anyone more dedicated than Pratham to fairness, accessibility, and transparency in democracy. He will do great things for this world. With an introduction like that, Pratham has every reason to be proud. Yet the way he talks about himself is self-effacing and humble. Whether he's recounting the moment he found out he was a Rhodes Scholar, the research behind his senior thesis on voter registration, or the lesson he learned from his parents. As you'll hear, I couldn't even get him to brag about receiving a congratulatory phone call from a candidate for president. Pratham Juneja, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on being named Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. What was your reaction when you got that news? So I, I'll, I'll walk you through what the process looks like the day of. Yes, perfect. Uh, which is probably the best way to show how, how I reacted. So the interview took place in this beautiful home of the chairman of Atlantic Media, uh, David Bradley, because the Atlantic Media offices were, were closed for construction. And so we're all in what is effectively a mansion in Washington, D.C. Right. Uh, and there's, there's 14 of us, I believe. And we're all sitting around, and you get called up for your interview for 20 minutes. And then you can leave for a little bit, but everyone has to come back at 1 o'clock. Okay. Uh, and then you eat lunch, and the judges are deliberating upstairs. Around 3.45 p.m., the judges come down from their high-top <laughs> interview room. And uh, all of us stand up, and they give a short speech about the scholarship and how competitive everything was. And then they just read the two names in front oh of my game one. I just didn't. I just didn't really react. A because I had no idea how to comprehend what had just happened, but also because like I didn't want to 
be gloating in front of right. 12 folks who lost. Uh, so, you know, I shook everyone's hand, uh, and then I, after everyone left, we went upstairs and met with the judges, and I called my parents, and that was, that was like, the, when it all finally sunk in. Uh, yeah. So I know there's 32 people nationwide mm. who get it. That group of 14, were they from a specific region? Yes, there's 16 districts. Okay. Uh, my district, uh, District 9, is Indiana, Virginia, Kentucky, which isn't, doesn't really make geographic sense, but it's to balance populations. Right. So I guess that most people listening to this, they've probably heard the term Rhodes Scholar. And I don't know that we always have a great sense of what it is or what it means, what it entails. I can tell people listening that, you know, it's the oldest and most celebrated international fellowship in the world. And that each year it selects 32 students to go pursue studies at Oxford in the U.K., how would you describe it, or what is it to you at this point? I know you, you haven't you haven't set foot on Oxford's campus yet, but what is it to you? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a full ride to Oxford, right? The, right. That's the the monetary portion of it, right? They take care of you, they give you a stipend, you have housing and and tuition money. Uh, what's really interesting is that it's not just thirty two people from the United States. You know, there's uh, dozens of other people from around the world who get chosen every year, and mm-hmm. so uh, folks from India, from South Africa, etc. And so. Uh, they started a global scholarship where folks who don't have an, like have an actual nation that they can call it home for them can can apply, and so it's a collection of of people who are going to be studying at Oxford, hopefully in, towards some sort of public good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talked about kind of the culmination of the application and decision process when you're all together and you're being called forward. What what is the process like leading up to that point? Because I imagine it's fairly involved and and long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. I think I so I applied for the Truman Scholarship uh, in the fall of last year, so the fall of 2018. I was applying for the Truman Scholarship, uh, and after I went through that process and ended up winning the Truman Scholarship, uh, it's when I started thinking about the roads and getting a lot of encouragement from cues and stuff about it. Um, and that's our, for people not at Notre Dame, that's our Center for Undergraduate Scholarly Engagement, exactly. which does a lot of work of working with our students to help folks apply to really yeah. competitive, competitive scholarships. Yeah, they're, they're amazing. Just a wonderful group yeah. of people who've, who've taken care of me for all, all mm-hmm. four and a half of my years here. So in theory, you're supposed to write your personal statement very early and then write, you know, 15 or 20 drafts of your personal statement. I told everyone I was going to do that over the summer. Come September... I had not written a single word. Uh, the application is due October 2nd. Okay. Uh, and a pretty recent policy for the Rhodes Scholarship is that no one's allowed to read your personal statement and, and give you edits. Uh, obviously, they read it when they submit it, right. so they've, they've read it, but um, right. you're not allowed to get any feedback on it. Uh, and I'm an awful writer. And so <laughs> like my Truman, I, I only exclusively won the Truman Scholarship because people were able to edit my essays and be like, hey, you used passive voice for the entire entirety of all your essays you should fix that uh, and that's when i learned the difference between active and passive voice but yeah so you know you write it's a 1000 word personal statement you know why why oxford what is the work that you're doing and why why is this going to help you do more good yeah. and then eight letters of recommendation wow uh, which is a, lot. a tough ask it is. Uh, but that that part at least because it didn't involve any work for me i handled in may you know i asked people about that although i didn't get most of my letters until the week before they were due um and that's it, and a proposed study, and you submit that, and then you you hope that something happens. So you're actually, we're recording this in December, and you're graduating this month in the Riley Dual Degree Program in Arts and Letters and Engineering. 
and you're graduating with two bachelor's degrees, and I, I want to give you credit to make sure people understand that it's not a double major. It is actually two separate bachelor's degrees. It's a BA in political science and a BS in computer science. Why those two fields? What excited you about merging your studies in, in that way? So this is kind of the story of my entire life, is not being able to decide what I want to do. When I was a kid, my parents always used to, to joke that I was going to be a lawyer because I argued with them so much. I think somewhere around then is when I got interested in some politics, you know, probably through Reddit, honestly, like reading about politics on Reddit as right. a 14-year-old and right. learning that there's something interesting going on here. And then I also really loved computers. I was always, you know, like the one that you would go to to, like, fix your iPhone or, or things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, even if I had no idea what I was doing, I really liked looking up how to learn how to do these things. So I went to an engineering magnet school. But while I was there, I got involved in student government and model UN and debate and stuff like that uh, and realized that I really had this love for politics as well. Um, but I, I didn't know how you could combine them. Uh, I always just kind of viewed them as two entirely separate things, and I was just going to put off the decision until I got to college. Uh, but then I started looking at colleges and found out that Notre Dame would let me do both. And I was like, great, I can continue putting off any major life decisions. Right. So I came here uh, after getting in, and it wasn't until my the end of my freshman year uh, when I started to realize that there was a way to use computer science in service of the public good. And that's really when, when I realized that this was the right decision, not because I'm just interested in these two subjects, but what I'm most interested in is public service, and I think I can do a lot of good using computer science in public service. Mm-hmm. There you mentioned some of your involvement in student government in high school. You were involved in student government at Notre Dame. Yeah, what was your position? I, was, I forgot what your position was. I, I was chief of staff. Chief of staff. Year. Yeah. You were involved in the nonpartisan ND Votes initiative, yeah. which is trying to get people to vote. And you, were, um, you worked as a researcher and a software developer while you're a student here in the South Bend, South Bend Mayor's Office, which... If you're guessing that one of your recommendation letters was from Mayor Pete when you were applying for the Rhodes Scholarship, that would be an accurate guess. I know that in your time in the mayor's office, and I I read just a really brief description of this, you developed an autonomous chatbot. What was was the chatbot and what issues was it aiming to solve for the city? Yeah. Uh, So at the time, the chief innovation officer of South Bend was a man named Santi Garces who is now one of my closest friends and mentors. He's the new chief innovation officer of Pittsburgh, actually. And Santi came up to me one day and he was like, hey, maybe we should build a chatbot. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, and that's that about all the context I got. He sent me a link to some, some GitHub page that someone had been working on a chatbot for cities in general. He was like, just mess around. And, with and it's basically, it's an automated kind of thing that if someone comes to a website and it need to be interacted with or a question or something. It doesn't necessarily have to be a real person that yeah. so, answering uh, that. I'll, I'll give the example yeah. of, of South Bend specifically. So we have a 311 office in South Bend. You call up 311 and you ask them, you know, just about any question. They're brilliant. They know they know the answers to everything. I hope that doesn't increase the call volume for, <laughs> for 311. They are already dealing with a lot. But, you know, they're getting a lot of calls that aren't particularly a good use of anyone's time. Like my favorite example is when's my trash pickup? Like, th- that's a five-minute phone call. Like, because you have to get the person's address. You're going to have a typo when you're typing it in. They're going to say something unclearly. It's just, why, why would we ever need a system that takes so much time on both ends? And so the chatbot, you go on Facebook. You go on, you, in theory, you should be able to text it, too. Uh, this isn't actually implemented in South Bend. The project has been sunsetted in South Bend, okay. uh, unfortunately. But you, you, text, you text the city, and you say, hey, when's my trash pickup? And it asks what your address is. You type it in, and you get it. It takes, like, 10 seconds. Um, 
And the, the idea here is not to automate away people's jobs in city government. The idea is how can you make communication on really basic things really easy for people. A lot of folks don't have time to make these calls or come in. And so what's the way that we can use technology to make the lives of people who don't have time to interact with city government a lot easier and then give city government employees time to work on things that are more important, like preventatory measures or, or more serious questions and things like that. Yeah, I was going to say, I would imagine it would really deployed correctly, it would really improve the work life of people who get these kinds of calls because then they can actually devote their time to solving issues that require a human being to actually exactly. be involved and solve them. Exactly. And you're not overwhelmed by the, uh, I told 35 people today, I looked up when their trash exactly. was. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Something that I know has been top of mind for you as you get ready to graduate is your senior thesis. Uh-huh. <laughs> you had a great tweet about it. If anyone wants to go look it up, it was a perfect tweet about it. But it examines something called the Interstate Voter Registration Crosscheck Program. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about that, and some of it is just kind of in the name, but what is the Interstate Voter Registration Crosscheck Program and what's the thinking behind why it would be a good tool? Oh, so it's a bad tool. It's a bad tool. <laughs> That's where I'll why, start. Why is it a bad tool? <laughs> okay, so Crosscheck was started in, in Kansas in 2005, and the idea is really simple. It's, it's, I, in, in my mind, it's a, it's a really great idea, right? If I'm registered to vote in Indiana and I move to Kansas, I'm probably not going to cancel my registration in Indiana. No one does that. Uh, and so I moved to Kansas. I registered to vote there. Uh, at the end of every year, all the states who are members of Crosscheck send Kansas their voter registration records. And Kansas runs a program to see if people are registered to vote in multiple states. And then it sends suggestions back to the states to say, hey, remove this person's registration. They're registered to vote in Kansas. The problem is it usually uses your first name, last name, and date of birth. And there are a lot of people who share the same first name, last name, and date of birth in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, way more than you would think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in a room full of 23 people, 50%, there's, there's a 50% chance that two people have the same birthday. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, that's a weird problem yeah. with statistics. It's called the birthday problem. It blew my mind when I read about <laughs> it, too. That's pretty crazy. And that's not because of, like, distribution of dates. That's just, like, if everyone, everyone had a, yeah. a birthday and equal amount of days, it would just, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, so millions of people are getting matched in these in the software who are rightfully registered to vote. And this doesn't apply to me, right? Like, there are no other problems in America. Literally none. I've checked the records. uh, Spelt my way. Uh, And there's definitely no problem. There might not be any in the world. So I'm I'm good. I'm not getting purged from cross-check. But there are hundreds of thousands of people who have probably been wrongfully removed from the voter registration rolls, if not millions, because of this software that has, over its time, had 35 of our 50 states join. Uh, And so... I, I'm studying in my thesis, or I guess I was because I did, I did actually complete it, um, <laughs> what the impact of wrongfully removing hundreds of thousands of people is on voter turnout rates. Like, does this matter? Were those people going to vote anyways? Uh, and the, the short answer to the question is we can't study it because states don't collect the data. The way Crosscheck works is every state will get these lists back, and then they deal with removing people however they want to. So some states will just remove everyone on that list. That was found uh, unconstitutional. But some states will go through a 20-step ver- verification process. They'll call you up. They'll check address change data. They'll check death records, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a really great way of doing it because then you're probably not going to wrongfully remove someone. Some states will just mail you a letter and see if you respond. If you don't respond, you get removed. And so you can't really measure how each state is using cross-check because they don't tell you. And then they don't tell you how many people have been removed. 
and I sent FOIA requests to 23 states and didn't get any useful information. So we're left with this program is probably awful. It's probably made people lose a lot of uh, voter turnout rates. Uh, we can't actually measure it because we're not collecting the right data. So if you, if we're not collecting the right data and we can't measure it, what would have you thought about how you would propose doing it differently or doing because obviously you want to maintain the integrity of the voter rolls yeah. as well as you can, but you also don't want to disenfranchise people in the process, or at least you shouldn't want to disenfranchise people in yeah. the process. And that's a whole another conversation. But if you were, someone gave you kind of the authority to say like, all right, how would, how should we be thinking about this? How would you think about doing it differently? Thankfully, I don't have to answer this question. <laughs> someone has already figured this out. So there's this program called Eric that is just cross-check, but a thousand times better. Okay. It, it spends a lot more time trying to verify whether or not two people are the same. So it uses way more sources of data than first name, last name, and date of birth. It uses address change records, postal service records, uh, social security numbers, etc. And so it's like way more uh, robust in how the algorithm works to figure out if people are the same person. And it also checks to see for people who aren't registered to vote but should be and then gives you recommendations on how to get those people registered to vote. So Eric is just replaced every cross-check state with Eric. And that's actually kind of what they're doing. Cross-check hasn't run since 2018 because of cybersecurity vulnerabilities. Oh, interesting. Um, because it was very easy for people to accidentally get access to the social security numbers of people in the database. Right. Uh, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> it's just another, just, another yeah. feather in its cap, yeah. right? Uh, my thesis didn't even touch on that, but I probably could have written 100 pages about how there, all of this data was basically on an open server, and anyone with moderate computer science knowledge could have had access to 23 states' voter files. Uh, so Eric is great, and we should all move to that. And is it being deployed? Yeah, it's being used. Uh, oh, that, the states are using it. It's great. Oh, that's awesome. Well, yeah. That one's actually it's a story with kind of a happy ending. It's <laughs> only a happy ending if every state decides to move, though. Right, right. The, right. You, you could argue that there's an incentive structure in place for some states to stay in cross-check and to use cross-check incorrectly mm -hmm. um, because minority last names are more likely to get matched in cross-check. Uh, and the political ramifications of that are really dangerous. This is voter suppression, mm -hmm. uh, and we need to treat it like a voter suppression issue and not like a technology issue. Right. Do you know how many, because I know you talked about 35 states, some of them have transitioned to the new system. How, how many a lot of states are members of both. Some states, you know, were, were, there's bills passed in their legislation that they have to, that they have to be a member of Crosscheck. So the Secretary of State can't just go ahead and change sure. that. So yeah. it, I think it'll take years. But Crosscheck hasn't been running for the last few years. So right. maybe it'll just die a slow death and we'll be, we'll be okay. So at Oxford, you'll be pursuing a, a Master of Science in Social Data Science and a Master of Public Policy. And anyone who's been listening to you talk here, I think those sound like the right things that you would be doing, it seems to track. And I'm going to apologize in advance for the overly lofty way I'm going to ask you uh, this question. But what do you see as the, the next step in your evolution as a scholar as, as you uh -huh. look towards your graduate studies and, and what you would like to be doing? So the first thing I'll say is I still have to get into Oxford. Um, oh. and I still have to get into those programs, and I'm not sure I'm going to get into those programs. So, so how, yeah, how does this how does this work now? Uh, I have to apply to Oxford, like uh, anyone applying to Oxford. My okay. applications due the first week of January, and yeah, I mean, I have to get into this program. So we'll see. The social data science program is very competitive, uh, and it I think they're looking more for people on the social side than on the data science side. And I haven't taken much sociology uh, other than reading some in my free time, and so I don't. 
I'm not optimistic. Okay. Uh, so we'll see. I'll yeah. get into Oxford, I yeah. think. Uh, it's for something. Uh, hopefully, it's for this program. As a Rhodes Scholar, I would think yes. Yeah, I, I hope they figure that <laughs> yeah, out, right? That I don't want to be the first Rhodes yeah. Scholar who doesn't get to use the scholarship. But I do know that I spent four and a half years at Notre Dame obsessively focusing on the practical, right? How can I take this knowledge from school and apply it to politics, apply it to local government, et cetera? And I think I'd like to step back a little bit and spend more time with the theoretical. Uh, I've got a growing, growing interest in political theory and actually reading books for fun and things like that. And I want to spend time, at least on the academic side of things, just reading and not, not continuously having to fight for time between my academic, social, and uh, practical public extracurricular work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'd love to have balance and sleep and really just engage with ideas. And, and that's one of the beauties of of having such a broad international community with the Rhodes. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about is some of these countries only get one Rhodes Scholar. Okay. That means that, like, those people are, are not just, you know, like, we are the top 32 who applied, but they are literally the, like, the Rhodes the Scholar one, for that country. The top one. That's probably yeah. the smartest person I'm going to meet in my entire life. So I'd like to pick their brain a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Uh, and spend most of my time just listening to ideas from other people and arguing with them and grabbing beers with them. Yeah. I, I mean, I know I mentioned earlier that uh, Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, was one of your letter writers. Have you had any conversations with him about what to expect from it or how to get the most out of it? Uh, Pete's a busy guy. Uh, <laughs> I did, running a presidential <laughs> campaign, right? I did get a sweet voicemail from him after <laughs> after I won, and he, he promised to, to share nostalgia with me. But I, I know what his advice is going to be already. It's going to be to take it a little bit easier and to to focus on on what I can learn that will be useful to folks in the future. Uh, how can I take what I learned at Oxford and apply it to the public good back here in the States? Um, and that's that's the goal. That's the dream. Make myself useful. Speaking of advice, and I, I shared this with you ahead of time because I it's the kind of question like I, I don't really like to, to just spring on people because I think that's kind of unfair. But my first year when I was at Notre Dame, I had a professor – in my intro to theology course, who said something, this was to the entire class, it wasn't to me directly, and I actually work with this man now here, which has always been kind of a cool and gratifying experience, Um, but I I took it away as a piece of advice, and he said, never assume you have a monopoly on the truth, and that's always stuck with me really as kind of words to live by, the way I try to, you know, engage with ideas and trying to engage with different people, and I'm wondering, as you have gotten to this point in your life, and you're still is someone who just celebrated his 40th birthday. I look at you and say, like, he's still just starting out. But I'm, I, I'm wondering, to get to this point, whether it was someone at Notre Dame, someone from growing up or whatever, have you received any advice or was there a particularly memorable story or something that you've kind of taken with you as, as you've gone through all these experiences and had all these experiences is, is guiding you or, or giving you some direction in that way? So you, you gave me two days to answer this question. I still do not have an answer for you. <laughs> Uh, and this is what I struggle with. One of the things I, I really struggle with is pointing to specific moments mm-hmm. that, that changed things for me. I, I think most of my life has just been a collection of smaller events. I'm also a materialist, so that would make sense. Um, but I, I will say that one of the things that I, I know in hindsight is the way that my parents' story reflects in my own. You know, my 
my parents immigrated to this country decades ago uh, to get health care for, uh, for my sister, who was born with a really rare heart condition in India. Uh, and she, she passed away during her, her final operation in, in Boston. Uh, and my parents didn't really know what to do, you know, like, do, do they stay here and try and start a new life uh, or do they move back home? And they started, decided to stay here. Uh, and they worked like I cannot even imagine for, you know, decades after that. And they're still doing it today uh, to give me a better life uh, than, than what they had and, and to make my life happier and, and more prosperous. Uh, and they, they never really pushed me to do anything. But what, what I always felt was was there growing up was the amount of time that you should be spending focusing on how you can help others. You know, like you, a vast majority of your life should be trying to contribute to other people. Uh, and that's advice that I've received from, from so many people now. I was telling you before the podcast started uh, about Joseph Buttigieg, uh, mm-hmm. who, who taught my literature cr- class my freshman year. Uh, and he's you know the closest thing I've had, had to the second father uh, in my life. And you know for the, for the three years that we knew each other, he consistently emphasized uh, how to take work that you do and actually make it useful to people. And whether that's by teaching them or, or by improving public service, um, it was just always, what can you do? Uh, how, can you, how can you make the world better? Uh, and I don't know, there's just so many great people in my life who've taught me that, uh, and I'm really grateful for that. Pratham Junasia, thank I, you're super busy. I mean, you're graduating literally in like a week or a week and a half, finals next week, starting your first job out of college, a lot going on. Um, congratulations again, and thank, thank you, you for so much. thank you for making time to do this. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. Thanks for having me. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast.